we want to talk, I want to talk a little bit about Sabbathing. Sabbathing. One of the things that we're focusing on this year as a leadership group is to uh, help us in this aspect, uh, in growing spiritually and following the ways of Jesus or in practicing the spiritual disciplines. One of the ones that's in the for- foremost, the focus of our minds at the moment is Sabbathing. Uh, it is one of the top 10 commandments, by the way, number five if you're keeping track. It's actually the separation between the first four, which is about our relationship with God, and the final uh, four, which is, uh, that would be uh, nine, the final five, which is uh, about our relationship horizontally, but right in the middle of all of that, when we move from worshiping God to working with people, is this concept of rest, right? Uh, And so in order to do that, or some things that we've brought about to be helpful for that, we have some resources, one of which is this Sabbath preparation guide. Uh, We've looked at Sabbath and the things that we find in the center of that is stopping and delighting and resting and worshiping. And so we want to help you, um, uh, help all of us make this a part of our regular practice uh, is to put in a, a purposeful Sabbath. Not just a Saturday where you clean the gutters and mow the lawn and, you know, pressure wash the driveway and go to the grocery shopping and do all the stuff and have rested, right? But where it's, we're intentional about our rest, where we're focusing on what God has done for us and, let, and allowing him uh, to refresh us. And so there's some... Uh, uh, Resources there to help you out. Uh, there's a video that, that Aaron did that's a really uh, good teaching. Uh, you can come and talk to me. We've got resources that we can give you, other books that you can read that'll help you through that. Uh, just reach out to us and we can help you go through that. So let me pray for us once again and then I'm going to invite Angela to come and she's going to read our passage. Father, we're so uh, thankful for everything that you do for us, that you uh, built into uh, your uh, plan for us that we would have rest. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to make Sabbath uh, and empower us to make Sabbath a uh, routine uh, part of our lives as we continue to worship uh, and serve you. Lord, we pray now that you would quiet our hearts and our minds. Help us to focus our attention on you as Aaron comes to open uh, your word for us. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17. Why Jesus used parables. Then the disciples came up and asked him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would heal them. 
Blessed are your eyes, because they do see, and your ears, because they do hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things you see, but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. Amen. Thanks, Angela. Good morning, church family. If you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to have this opportunity uh, to kick off a new teaching series called Stories of the Kingdom, about the parables of Jesus. And uh, one really quick just piece of information. You know, we are blessed in this church with many incredible just servant-hearted leaders. And uh, in particular, among our elder team, we are really blessed to have, I mean, I thought Steve was about to start preaching here and just take off. I wasn't going to get a chance. Um, men like Steve and John, who's here leading us in worship, and even uh, Pastor Jason over there have all served as like lead teaching pastors before. And so I am super privileged as a lead teaching pastor to be able to hand off to uh, incredible, just uh, excellent preachers and teachers of God's word. Are you guys blessed by that? Like, this is an amazing thing, right? And <clears throat> we currently have two men who are going through a testing and confirmation process to join us as elders. We have uh, Myung Hong, who is somewhere here in the room, and then uh, Jeremiah Robinson. And both of those men are, are, are meeting with us regularly as elders and um, had the idea, because the Bible says that one of the qualifications for eldership is to be able to teach. And that doesn't necessarily mean like public speaking, but just to be able to teach the scriptures. And so I had the idea, I said, hey, what if we included those guys in this parables teaching series as well as a way for them to prepare and practice and come up, present God's word and feed the flock. And so, you know, John and Jason and Steve is usually going to preach and then Jeremiah and Myung going to join me in this parable series. And as we're having this conversation over in the corner, I heard just a whimpering from Pastor Doug Freiberg, a little tear going down his cheek. What about me? I'm always asking to preach, and you never let me preach. And so I said, fine, Pastor Doug, we'll let you preach as well. And so actually, throughout the course of this teaching series, every single one of the other elders and elder candidates are going to join and get to help present and, and teach God's Word. So I'm really excited about that. I think that's super-duper cool. So, uh, And while they're preaching, I will be playing guitar in the back of the room or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what I do with all the extra energy. But here's what we want to do. I want to pray. And I want to dive in today with kind of an introductory overview of the parables and what the point of them are uh, with a teaching titled Stories of the Kingdom. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 13 is where we're going to be. And let's pray one more time. Lord, I ask that you would guide and direct our time right now. I ask and I pray as we open the scriptures and we, we look at what you said, Lord Jesus, about why you use parables so much. I just ask and pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts right now. Lord, I pray that we would be able to, in a, in a sanctified sort of way, just even really be able to imagine just your presence here with us right now. God, that you are not far off and distant, but you are close through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, you inspired these words to be written. And so would you bring them to life in our hearts and minds right now and help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of these words. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let me make a little slightly controversial statement here up front, okay? You are spoiled. Some of you are hitting your spouse right now. I see that. Stop it. No, as, as, as followers of Jesus, 
we are incredibly privileged to have the Bible. Um, we, you know, Pastor Steve was talking about the spiritual discipline of Sabbathing, spiritual disciplines, these habits, these formative habits of, of prayer and all these sorts of things. Here's the controversial thing. Most followers of Jesus throughout history did not have Bible reading as one of their spiritual habits and disciplines. Do you know why? Because the printing press has only been around for a few hundred years. And even after the advent of the printing press for another few hundred years, books were really expensive and really hard to come by. And widespread literacy is a pretty recent thing. Most people couldn't read. Most people couldn't get their hands on books. Most people didn't have access to scrolls. It was only the highly educated, the, maybe the wealthiest or the upper, upper class who ever had any opportunity to sit and read the Bible. So I don't want you to feel guilty about it, but you can pull out a phone out of your pocket and have like 40 different awesome translations at the drop of a hat. How cool is that? And a couple of really bad translations. But... <laughs> Most followers of Jesus did not ever just sit and read the Bible the way that you and I do. Hey, could you go back to the title slide with the stained glass real quick on the slides? Will you do that? It's my kid running the slides, I think. Will you do what I say? Okay, so um, in a lot of old churches, in a lot of old buildings, they would have these paintings or stained glass. Do you know why? It's not just to make it pretty, although it is pretty. It's because for largely illiterate populations, this is how they would learn about the ministry and the life of Jesus or the the ministry of Moses or Abraham or the prophets or Daniel and the lion's den was through paintings and frescoes and stained glass windows. Stories are incredible. A couple of years ago, I watched a documentary about, I think the documentary was just called Memory Games. Did you know that there are competitions in which many, many nerds convene together and practice memorizing things, and they compete against each other. Just imagine this afternoon, if you watch the Seahawks football game, just think, I could be watching nerds reciting 100 numbers that they memorized. Well, in that documentary, I did not know this, and I learned that one of the ways, one of the tools that people use to memorize, you know, here's 100 words, I'm going to memorize these 100 words in order, is by writing a story. You craft a story, and now all of a sudden, you can remember all of these things. I recently finished reading... Homer's Odyssey. I mentioned that a few months ago. I made it through. Um, Don't worry, I still worship the one true God, not Zeus or any Greek gods or anything like that, okay? Um, But when we got done with it, I was doing a little bit of reading on it, and I I remembered two things. Number one, um, the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You guys remember that movie? Loosely based on Homer's Odyssey, so we watched it with a couple of my older kids and kind of relived the glory days, and that sent me down uh, an Allison Krauss and Union Station uh, rabbit trail because my goodness, did she like just get a voice from the Lord Himself or something? And and like and then you get to these like you know stories like country music does story songs better than any other genre of music. They tell yeah, Amen, yeah, Amen, y'all, right? So. Uh, story songs and you're watching like people just kind of weep and tear up and you see they're telling a story about a you know whatever a traveling soldier or whatever <laughs> Homer's Odyssey it's this giant book and poets would go around and they would just recite it publicly 
and the whole thing memorized because it's in rhythm and rhyme and poetry and story. Story can motivate, can cause you to do things, it can cause you to want to rise up. Story's incredible. There's a scholar, I got um, a book from him, and we're going to lean on him heavily throughout this series, and he has the most incredible name of any Bible scholar I've ever, I've ever come across before. His name is Klein Snodgrass, and he writes this. <laughs> what a name, yeah. Any of you expectant moms out there, be thinking, Klein, Snodgrass. Um, Nothing, he says, is so attractive or so compelling as a good story. Children and adults do not say, tell me some facts. A few nerd kids do, but uh, they want a story. Stories are inherently interesting. Discourse we tolerate to story we attend. Story entertains, but it informs. It involves, like it makes you feel like you're part of it motivates, authenticates, and mirrors existence. Now, Jesus was a master storyteller. Jesus is known, even by people who aren't followers of Jesus, who aren't students of the Bible, as a master storyteller. Our dear brother Klein goes on. He says, Jesus' parables are among the best known and most influential stories in the world. Even if people know nothing of Jesus, they either know about his stories or have encountered their impact in expressions like prodigal or good Samaritan. The importance of the parables of Jesus can hardly be overestimated. And so as we kick off this teaching series in the parables today, I would like to simply take our time and I would like to ask and answer four questions, okay? Four questions for today. Number one, what is a parable? Number two, why did Jesus use parables? Number three, what were his parables about? And then number four, why should we study for these next few months the parables of Jesus? What are they? Why did Jesus use them? What were they about? And why should we study them? That's two what's and two why's if you're keeping score at home. Okay, what is a parable? First question. Now, um, a parable... Everyone kind of generally knows that it's, you know, some sort of a story. But in fact, parable from kind of a, I don't know if you want to call it like a scholarly standpoint, it actually is famously hard to define. There's, it's joked about, about how hard it is to actually define what a parable is. In fact, one of the commentaries I got by a scholar named Craig Blomberg, his commentary, the first two chapters, two, not just one, two chapters are all about what is a, what is a parable. Uh, but... I think we can say safely that it's something more than an illustration, but something less than an allegory. More than an illustration. Even as I say more than an illustration, Jesus in Luke 42, uh, 4 verse 32 says, well, no doubt you'll quote this parable to me. Physician, heal thyself. That's a parable? Physician, heal thyself? If it is, it's the shortest one ever. <clears throat> and it's definitely something less than an allegory. You guys know what an allegory is? Usually it's like a longer story. Like think um, Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, right? Like the classic, or even The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where each thing kind of has this symbolic meaning. The parables are shorter than that, but they're longer than an illustration. How's that for a precise definition? Now, they are normal, but they're also exaggerated, right? They're normal in the sense, like, they're not like an Aesop's fable. There's no talking animals. There's no kind of magical sort of things. They're normal, right? Uh, one time, a farmer planted some seeds. That kind of normal, right? It'd be like you telling the story. One time, a guy got on the bus to go to work, right? It's normal. 
But they're kind of heightened. They're exaggerated, right? Like, and then this thing happened, and it was kind of, it was kind of crazy. And then his, his, his seeds produced a, a crop a hundred times better than he even expected, right? It's kind of exaggerated. My, one of my favorite ones about the exaggeration is the woman, the story of the woman who loses the coin, and then she cleans her whole house aggressively, some might say. Um, and that's not the exaggerated part. It's that when she finds her lost coin, she throws a party and invites all of her friends and family and neighbors. How many of you have ever like lost your wallet or lost your purse? Any of you? When you found it, did you throw a party? Like, look at all this money I found. Let's just have a party. You're like, no, I got to go back and buy food for these stinking kids again, right? Or whatever. <clears throat> the parables are, they're normal stories, just slightly heightened and exaggerated. And then lastly... They're, they're, they can range from pretty simple to pretty complex. Pretty complex, relatively speaking, right? Like a simple one. Once upon a time, there was a farmer. He planted some seed. He slept. The seeds grew. The end. Like, pretty simple. And then there's other ones like, hey, once upon a time, there was a dad who had two sons, and the one son wanted all his money, and he went and he did this, and that, right? Like, it's a complicated, more, more involved story, Okay. Now, there's lots of parables in the Bible, not just Jesus. Lots of parables in the Bible. In fact, maybe one of the most famous non-Jesus parables is the prophet Nathan after the incident with King David abusing Bathsheba, killing Uriah, and Nathan tells the parable of the the rich man and the sheep. And it cuts David to the quick, and he's repentant before the Lord, and he writes Psalm 51. There's lots of these types of parables and stories throughout the Bible, but hands down, it's Jesus. I mean, Jesus was always using parables. In fact, Matthew tells us this. Matthew, in, in, in chapter 13, a little later after our scripture reading, verse 34, it says, Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable. Just pause on that for a second. Like, just always, always with parables. Matthew is Matthew's gospel is arranged very intentionally. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew, Matthew put the book together in a very intentional sort of way uh, to highlight the fact that Jesus is the king. So, you know, we did the Sermon on the Mount a couple years ago. And you remember like chapters, uh, you know, the five and following are like this really intense section of just teaching, just discourse and teaching. And then Matthew 13, it's like, all the parables in one chapter. Now, Matthew arranged it that way, inspired by the Spirit on purpose. But I think what Matthew wants us to imagine is like the entire Sermon on the Mount, where all of the preaching, anytime Jesus tells a story about, you know, if your if you're, if you're, you know, eye causes you to sin, cut it out, which reminds me, once upon a time, like Jesus was always using stories in his teaching and his preaching. It says, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled and he quotes, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Which leads us to our second question. Why? Why did Jesus use parables so much? Well, let's jump back to verse 10, where we heard in our scripture reading. So the disciples came up and asked him. They asked him this exact question. Why do you use parables so much, Jesus? And here's his answer. Because there are secrets of the kingdom of heaven and it's been given, it's a gift, and you're going to know them. But it has not been given to everyone, he says. For whoever has, more will be given to him. 
And you'll have more than enough, but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. This is why, this is why I speak to them in parables because it's like they're looking, but they, they just can't see it. What are those things called? Do you remember those posters? They were popular in the 90s where they're like kind of all chunked up and if you stare hard enough at them, you could see like a magic eye? Yeah. I remember the first time I was able to ever actually get one of those to like work for me. I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm not seeing, and then I see it. T-Rex, praise the Lord, right? That's what Jesus says it's like. He's like, I'm telling these stories and there's some people that are just looking and they're looking and they're looking and they're looking and they just don't see it. And hearing, it just... Sounds like static. They don't listen. They don't understand. You know what Isaiah said centuries before has come true with them. It's fulfilled. It says, you will listen and understand, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. Why? Because these people, their, their, their hearts are callous and tough. And their ears are just filled with wildflowers and potatoes. And they've, they've even closed their own eyes if they didn't do all that, they would see with their eyes and they would hear with their ears and they would understand with their hearts and I would, and they would turn back and I would heal them. Do you see the heart of the Lord here? I would love for them to get it. I would love for them to be healed. I would love for them to get this redemption, but their eyes are closed and their ears are closed and their hearts are hard. And then Jesus says this, he goes, but blessed are your eyes because they do see And blessed are your ears because they do hear. Because get this, Jesus says, there were a lot of prophets and righteous people who really wished to see the things that you see, but they didn't get to. They they wanted to hear these things. Abraham is jealous of you. Picture this conversation with Jesus and his disciples. He's like, Moses is jealous of you in an okay way. Prophet Isaiah, man, he wishes he could get to see what you're seeing right now. And friends, the same is true for us as well. I'll summarize it this way. Jesus Jesus is using parables, I think, for three reasons we see in this passage. The first one is just simply to create intrigue. Do you see the way the disciples are like leaning in and they're asking questions and they're, "What, what is going on, Jesus? You know, it's like when a, when a movie or a book has kind of like a, intriguing sort of beginning. You kind of lean in a little bit more. You kind of press in a little bit more. What's, what's going on? I want to know what's happening here. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's telling these stories. He's creating some intrigue to, to draw people in. Secondly, he says, I'm telling these parables, parables to reveal who truly are my disciples. How many of you know that during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, many people followed him, but they didn't follow him? They wanted the blessings. They didn't want the blesser. And when the miraculous bread and the fishes, you know, kind of stopped happening, they all parted and went their way. Jesus says, I'm telling these stories because some people are going to get it. Some people have had their eyes opened and their ears opened and their hearts softened by God. And when I tell these stories, light bulbs start to go off. Friends, how many of you know today There are people who follow Jesus, but don't follow Jesus, have never surrendered to him as Lord. They might do Christian things. They might go to church on occasion. They might say, oh, I like Jesus and some of his teachings. But Jesus says, if you don't get it, you don't get it. 
And third, Jesus says that he tells these parables to disarm the objections, to get around the stopped up ears, to get past the blind eyes, to cut through the hardened heart. This is what you would call in communication theory, indirect communication. Direct communication is do this thing, believe this truth. But how many times throughout Jesus' ministry do we read in the gospel, somebody would walk up to him and say, Jesus, what about this debate? Should we do this or should we do that? And Jesus does what? Launches into a story. And then when he's done telling the story, what do they often do? What do you often see the people do? Just kind of walk off. (laughs) Well, what a weirdo. (laughs) Jesus, should we do this or should we do that? Well, you know, once upon a time, there was a, a man who was traveling down the road and get done and they're like, They can't say anything. He disarmed them. By the way, storytellers have known for a long, long time that if you want to change hearts and you want to change minds, if you want to cause action from someone, stories are the most effective way. I was reading an article, and I don't mean to get super political here, but just medium political. I was reading an article this last week that was talking about how current uh, President Biden, when he was vice president, President Barack Obama, uh, before the Supreme Court decision regarding same-sex marriages, both of them were on the record as opposing same-sex marriage. Both Joe Biden and Barack Obama as recently as 2011. And then you guys know about the Supreme Court decision that took place and, and, and just... Again, I'm not trying to be super political here, but how many of you realize we have undergone a radical society-wide change in like the blink of an eye uh, regarding marriage, sexuality, all of those sorts of things. And as recently as 2010 or 11, both former President Obama and President Biden were on the record of saying, you know, that they, they didn't believe in gay marriage. But when the decision came out and the voting happened and all of that, Uh, This article said President Biden quoted what changed his mind. Do you know what it was? Will and Grace. The sitcom from the 90s, Will and Grace. He said, I watched a lot of Will and Grace and those stories uh, changed my mind over something as, I mean, Catholics would call it a sacrament. Sacramental. A moderately funny, not that funny sitcom from the 90s changed a former head of state's mind about something as incredibly potent as marriage and sexuality. Again, I I said I'm not trying to be ultra-political. I guess I'm being a little bit political. But the point of that is, is that stories shape us. And at the risk of jumping to application right now, what stories are shaping you? We live in a storytelling culture, do we not? Do you guys remember when... um, Cutting the cable cord was going to save us all money. And now there are approximately 418 different streaming services that each want me to pay eight bucks a month for them. And, uh, you know, know, the the GDP of a small country to afford all the different streaming services and all that. And, and, And like, you know, there's a lot of original content, a lot of original programming. Things are pretty well done. I mean, there's obviously terrible stuff and filler and fluff and garbage, but like there's some pretty good stories out there, right? 
Do you think those storytellers that write those stories are just writing them because they're bored? Or do they want to communicate something, to help you think something, to make you believe something, to make you feel something? My kids hate watching movies or TV with my wife. <laughs> because I'm a preacher, but good Lord, when the, when the movie takes a turn or the show takes a turn, it is pause button and sermon on. Oh my goodness. Now look, I'm not saying like, oh, you know, throw your TV in the lake. Maybe you need to throw your TV in the lake. I don't know. You talk about that with the Lord God. But what I am saying is, are you thinking about the stories, the, the books you read, the shows you watch? Even if you watch just like a, a, a football game this afternoon, they're going to tell a story about the players and all this stuff. We are surrounded by stories and the stories want to shape us. Jesus told stories to do all these things to shape and to, to, to shift the minds and the thinking of his hearers. Now, third question, which is, what are Jesus' parables about? Like, what were his parables about? Well, that's easy. Easy answer. You ready? The kingdom of God. It's plain to see. You do not need a Bible degree. Just skim through Matthew chapter 13. Verse 10, the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking them in parables? He answered, because the secrets of the what? Say it with me. The kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it's not been given to them. Then he starts going through all these parables. Verse 24, he told another parable to them. He said, the kingdom of heaven. Say it with me. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Verse 31, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and planted in his field. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. That's a weird one. We'll get to that. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. Verse 52, he said to them, every teacher of the law who's become a disciple in the kingdom kingdom of the heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom treasures, new and old. You're picking up what Matthew's laying down. You're picking up with what Jesus is getting at here. The kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' parables are about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which is a synonymous term. Now, maybe though that brings up a more important question or maybe a slightly more difficult to answer question is, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? If that's what his parables are about, what is it? Well, I'm certainly glad you asked. I want you to imagine the beginning. God creates the heavens and the earth, and he makes all things, and he makes them, what's the word that is used over and over again in Genesis? He creates it, and God says, it is good. It's good, and it's beautiful, and it's lovely, and it's vibrant. God could have made everything sepia-toned, but he made sunsets. God could have made everything sound like gray, white noise, and he made birds chirping. God could have made everything taste like tofu, (laughs) but he made sriracha. (laughs) And God created the, the, the humans, and he says, okay, exercise dominion, rule. I'm in charge of everything, but I'm I'm putting you in as my representatives. 
But Adam and Eve were not content to live under the wise and loving rule of God. And so there was a, there was a rebellion. The humans rebelled against the, the wise and loving rule of God and everything was thrown into chaos because God's appointed representatives abdicated their position of authority and all of the beauty and all of the joy and all of that has been marred and stained by sin. Can you imagine the most beautiful music you have ever heard is still tainted with fallenness. The most delicious meal you have ever eaten is still a fallen earth meal. And so God says to a man named Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna use you to be a blessing to not just one people group, not just one nation, but how many nations? All of them. So I'm gonna use your descendants And I'm going to promise to rule universally through you. All the nations, all the people groups under the sun will come under my rule through your descendants. And so Abraham receives this promised blessing. And generations later, through Moses, God speaks and he says, now you're going to be not just my promised blessing, but you're going to be my specifically chosen people. And through the giving of the Torah and through being situated in the promised land, God says, I'm going to work on you and I'm going to rule directly over you and you're going to be my people. I will be your God and through you, I'm going to spread my rule out to all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, how many of you know the story of the Hebrew scriptures, the story of the Old Testament? God's people continuing in that rebellion. God's people continuing in their worship of the Baals and false gods and there's violence and there's sexual uh, misconduct and eventually it lands them in exile far away from their homeland and they feel like now I'm under the, the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. I am not under the rule of God but during that time God started speaking through his prophets this promise that there's a Messiah who's gonna come. There's a chosen king who's gonna come and when he shows up, kingdom of God stuff. Nebuchadnezzar won't be in charge. God will be in charge. Darius won't be in charge. Alexander the Great won't be in charge. Caesar Augustus won't be in charge. It will be God's chosen king. And for hundreds of years, there's this promised Messiah. And around the time that Jesus was born, there was a fever pitch. People of Israel wanted the Messiah. They wanted a king. They're under the boot of Rome. And they want a leader who's gonna get rid of Rome and restore Israel to her former glory. That's the kingdom we want, the people said. We want that kind of kingdom of God. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and he's telling all these stories and he's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. When you pray, pray that God's kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. And so these Pharisees in Luke chapter 17, they they surround Jesus. They asked him, hey, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable, you guys. No one's going to say, oh, see here, or look there. You see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. (sighs) Jesus says the kingdom of God doesn't look the way that earthly kingdoms look. 
It doesn't look like political allegiances. It doesn't look like having the best constitution or the best Supreme Court or the best king or the best queen or the best parliament or whatever it is. It's about having Jesus with you. That's the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is the king. He's the king of Israel. He is the one who perfectly relives and reimagines everything that Israel was supposed to do, everything that Israel was supposed to be in his teaching, in his miracle. How many of his miracles are a direct callback to something in the story of Israel? Jesus lived this life saying, I'm Israel, and I'm Israel's rightful king. And not only is he the king of Israel, is he the king of the Jews, he's the suffering king betrayed by his, one of his closest disciples, abandoned by the rest, mocked and hated and reviled by the religious leaders, arrested and bloodied and crucified, hanging on a cross shamefully for you and for me because of the ugliness that we unleashed into God's beautiful world. Friends, at a human level, there is nothing so ugly as the cross. And when we look at the cross of Jesus, we see the horror of sin and ugliness. But from a spiritual standpoint, there is nothing so beautiful as that old rugged cross because it is on that cross that you and I are redeemed and healed and restored and made new. And friends, how many of you know that Jesus is not just the suffering king because on the third day, he rose from the grave and he got up out of that tomb and he is the victorious king, raised imperishable. And he says to anyone who trusts in me, if you believe in me, one day you too will raise imperishable and you will be impervious to the decay and the death and the ugliness of sin and you will live with me forever in a new heavens and a new earth. And then Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where now he is the universal king ruling over all things, all people, all nations, all galaxies, all solar systems, and Jupiter and everything else and beyond. And one day he's going to return and we're going to see him face to face and we will live with him forever. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And it all starts with Jesus saying, you know, it's kind of like a guy planting a little seed and it just keeps growing into a big, big, big tree. These parables are, well, they were dangerous in Jesus' day. N.T. Wright says it this way, I like it. He says, the parables, and they're not these just nice, friendly illustrations designed to help people get their minds around, you know, some sort of deep, abstract truth. In fact, the truth they speak of isn't really all that abstract at all. It's about Jesus. It's about what God is doing personally, bodily in Jesus and his work and what God will do through his death and resurrection. The parables are about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not abstract abstract spiritual truths. They're about him. God is indeed sowing Israel again, planting his people once more through Jesus, but it doesn't look like what most people were expecting. Here's how I would summarize this. If we're asking the question, why, you know, what were Jesus' parables about? I think it's this. It's to get us asking this question. What would it look like if Jesus were in charge of everything? The kingdom of God. Jesus ruling and reigning. Jesus truly being Lord in your life, in your neighborhood, in your family, in our city, in the Pacific Northwest, in the United States of America, in the world, in the Milky Way galaxy. 
Which leads me to the last question for the day. Why should we spend upwards of three months studying these parables? Why study the parables? Last question for today. Uh, On Christmas Eve, uh, once all the ice had melted, Yukon Cornelius showed up and got us unstuck from the snow. We packed the family up in our swagger wagon minivan. We drove north to Blaine, Washington. And we spent the day with uh, my wife's Grandpa Barry. Grandpa Barry was born on Christmas Eve. And on that particular Christmas Eve, we were celebrating his 87th birthday. Now, I love Grandpa Barry. Grandpa Barry, and if you ever wonder why my wife is so intense, it's her Grandma Jody. It's where she gets it. But Grandpa Barry is, um, for as long as I've known him, 20 plus years, he's the king of random question games. So you'd sit down like a family event, a birthday, a holiday, whatever, and he'd like pull out paper and pens and he'd just start like random question games. Well, here in these older years, he hasn't done them as much, but he's still always good for a couple of good questions. And so we'd had lunch and people were visiting and we're sitting around there and he walks up to me and he goes, Aaron, I saw something on the news the other day that really bothered me. He says the, the news was reporting that religion in America is really declining. Pe- people aren't going to church as much as they used to. People are actually de-affiliating from like, just any sort of religious belief. He goes, did you know that? <laughs> I said, yes, Grandpa Barry, I did. A, it's kind of part of my job to address that. Uh, but yeah, it's a really concerning trend. And he goes, well, why might that be? And so we started talking about it. And just to sit there and reflect over, the, the, again, the rapid shift we've had in culture with someone who's lived for almost a century, 87 years. If you round up, it's 90. and you round that up, that's 100, right? <laughs> that's preacher math. <laughs> sitting there reflecting, like he can reflect back on, you know, the, the way it used to be in America where you would, you could, it was societally advantageous to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, I have, listen to me, please. I am not trying to be hand-ringy or gloom and doom, but how many of you know that in a very short period of time, the society that we live in has shifted dramatically. And maybe we haven't noticed it as much up here in the Pacific Northwest because we've always kind of been a little bit godless heathens or whatever, but in large swaths of the United States of America, the Midwest, the South, even the East Coast for Catholics, it was societally advantageous to be a follower of Jesus. And now, to be a follower of Jesus um, does not necessarily get you any social credit. Now, I think there is some good of that because like Jesus said, some people follow me, but they don't really follow me. Some people attended church so that they could make business networking contacts or find their next, you know, their, their, their next best friend or their spouse. And not because I'm going to follow Jesus, because I'm devoted to Jesus, because he's the Lord of my life. You know, we're a Bible church, and we love to go through books of the Bible and line by line through books of the Bible and one of the things about uh, maybe a potential risk about being a Bible type of church 
is that the word imagination can become a bad word. The word imagination, because we, we, we associate it with, you know, I'm just imagining whatever I want to about God or, you know, sinful human beings coming up with really creative, imaginative ways to give place to sin, right? This last October, our staff, we went to a conference hosted by the Harbor Network. The Harbor Network is a, the, the church planting network that we are a part of. And one of the core values of the Harbor Network is the combination of conviction and imagination, And this three-day conference that we went to was all centered around the interplay between conviction and imagination. In fact, I'll read you their values statement that they have up on the the website. Harbor Network says this, we anchor ourselves in the historic faith and we also imagine fresh expressions of the kingdom for our particular cultural moment. Our leaders believe that theological clarity gives us the the conviction and the courage for imagination. And while we were sitting at this conference and while these different speakers were showing us in the scripture, the first thing that popped to my mind was, I want to do a sermon series on the parables to help stir the imagination to help us as disciples. God does not give us a, you know, check these 15 boxes a day and you're good. He gives us himself. He gives us his spirit. He gives us a community. He gives us the scripture. And he says, you're going to go into this world and you're going to live life and you're going to have to think creatively. You're going to have to imagine yourself being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Meanwhile, while it seems like everyone else around you is worshiping other gods and following other ways of living. So I'll close with this thought. It's this, that each generation of Christians must imagine afresh how to live as citizens of the kingdom. Imagination is not a bad word, Sound City Bible Church. A sanctified, spirit-stirred, an eye for what is beautiful, and not just what's true, but what's beautiful, what's good. What stirs the heart? What makes you smile? What brings a tear to your eye? How do we live as citizens of the kingdom in a world that is so marred by ugliness and destruction? And that's what we're going to spend this series. I, I kind of hate doing introductory because I'm like, well, let's just get going then. So if, if you guys want to take an intermission, I'll start on next week's sermon right now and go. But that's what we're going to study. How do we imagine living as citizens of the kingdom in your workplace, your family, your school. Heck, Sabbathing takes some imagination, does it not? Some creativity, some imagination. Imagine being a person who rested one day every week in a society full of workaholism and 24-hour access to everything. Imagine, what would that be like? Even now, as we come to the table of the Lord, let's imagine ourselves being saved by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And then let's imagine ourselves lifting our voices really loud and singing to our King. Lord Jesus, you are the King. We are grateful to be citizens of your kingdom. Lord, though our sin is so ugly, you have given us beauty for ashes You have given us the beauty of redemption out of the ugliness of the cross. And so, Lord, even now, would you stir our imaginations 
for how to live as citizens of the kingdom, not just during a Sunday morning worship service, but in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.